Good afternoon, and thank you for joining us for a panel <coughs> on the United States, Iran, and the post-Geneva Middle East. What's next after the joint plan of action is implemented? I want to welcome you to Hudson, and I want to welcome our live C-SPAN audience as well. <clears throat> My name is Lee Smith. I'm a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute and a senior editor at the Weekly Standard. Uh, I want to distinguish, uh, introduce quickly our distinguished panel here, uh, all the way to the left, uh, or rather all the way to the right, is Michael Duran, a senior fellow <laughs> at the Savant Center for Middle East Policy, where he specializes in Middle East security issues. Uh, my colleague, Halel Fradkin, is a senior fellow at Hudson, where he directs its Center on Islam, Democracy, and the Future of the Muslim World, and, its, and is co-editor of Current Trends in Islamist Ideology. Ray Takei, to my immediate left, is a senior fellow for Middle East Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations and adjunct professor at Georgetown University. <clears throat> what I've asked them to do, I'm going to ask Ray uh, to give a brief five-minute introduction to what he'll be talking about, and then Halal will give another uh, a brief introduction, and then uh, Mr. Duran will do the same, and then from there we'll launch into a, I hope, informal and casual conversation, freewheeling and galvanizing, I trust, and then after that we'll move to a uh, 20 to 30 minute question and answer period at the end. So I hope that you will uh, derive different uh, points of interest and questions to ask our panel right here. Ray, if you would begin. Sure. Uh, I'll just begin by discussing a little bit, uh, I hope everyone can hear me, the joint plan of action, uh, because I do think it's a complicated agreement and people talk about the joint plan of action as, you know, I'm for it, I'm against it. But as most arms control agreement is complicated and it has a number of provisions that one has to be aware of. Uh, for one thing, it's, I would say it's an unusual agreement because although it is interim in some of the measures that it prescribes, it does have probably the most consequential page of the joint plan of action. It's the last page where they agree on some principles that will define the final deal. Uh, some of the measures that are interim, such as suspension of Iranian 20% production, a greater degree of transparency and access by the IAEA are to be welcomed, and I think they're important. Uh, they do inject a measure of restraint in Iran's otherwise undisturbed nuclear trajectory. Uh, but once you get to the final steps, uh, it is suggested by the joint plan of action that whatever the final deal is agreed upon in the next six months to a year, uh, that final deal itself would have a sunset clause, would have an expiration clause. And at the conclusion, expiration of that sunset clause, Iran will be treated as any other member of the NPT. In essence, that means if the letter of the agreement is followed through, that Iran, after a period of time, and that period is being negotiated and it's undefined, will have a right to not just indigenously enrich uranium, but to do so on an industrial scale. The other aspect of the interim agreement, which I think is characteristic of most arms control agreements, to be fair, is that there is no provision for enforcement after the final agreement is signed. It is suggested by the agreement that all sanctions are to be lifted. Uh, I think the language it uses comprehensively lift all sanctions multilateral and national measures. And therefore, if once the agreement is signed, we m see some measure of Iranian violations, <coughs> it'll be very difficult to reconstitute the sanctions regime, which has taken 10 years to build across two administrations. 
now, I just have to say, no arms control agreement has provisions for enforcement after the agreement is signed. I would suggest that those two provisions need to be re-examined. Uh, I think whatever comprehensive restrictions are negotiated should be durable and not be subject to a sunset clause. And I would try to introduce some measure of maybe suspending the sanctions, not lifting them. Therefore, they can have a sort of a trigger clause and they can be reinstituted should we see a measure of Iranian violation. Now, let me finally say about whether there's a final agreement possible or not. Uh, the way the new Iranian team negotiates, uh, President Rouhani and Foreign Minister Javad Zarif, I think what they're mostly focused on is the duration of the comprehensive agreement. Uh, so I think they'd be willing to give some things on even perhaps even dismantling things in order to get as brief of a sunset clause as possible. And therefore, they can move to production at an industrial size capability. So if that is their calculation, and I think that was their calculation going to an interim deal, they agreed to a lot of interim uh, concessions and restrictions in order to get the long-term principles that were perhaps beneficial to them. If that is their approach, then there might be a comprehensive agreement uh, between the two sides, between five plus one. I don't think it'll happen in the next six months, and I think both Iranian officials have hinted at that. Uh, Deputy Foreign Minister Arochi has hinted that they're unlikely to get to a comprehensive agreement in six months, which will be in July. The agreement does have a trigger mechanism where they can essentially have another six months. I'm not sure if it's implausible if the Iranians get the right number of years in terms of the expiration clause, because I think that's what they're focused on. I'll stop here, and we can move on to other questions. Thanks, Rick. Thanks very much. Sure. Uh, sure. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Lee. Um, I, I was asked to speak uh, more or less about the following. What are we uh, to look at the, um, the joint action plan in light of what uh, we're seeing today in the Middle East as a whole, uh, how that might relate to past history, and what, how it might, uh, what it might portend going forward. I thought I'd begin by offering a certain view by quoting um, with a quotation, uh, which goes as follows. You have a schism regarding the Middle East now. You have a schism between Sunni and Shia throughout the region that is profound. Some of it is directed or abetted by states who are in contest for power there. You have failed states that are just dysfunctional. And various warlords and thugs and criminals who are trying to gain leverage or a foothold so that they control resources, populations, territory. Uh, this view cites uh, some examples. Syria, where, quote, you have an authoritarian, brutal government, which is willing to do anything to hang on to power. And Iran, quote, is funding terrorist organizations, trying to stir up sectarian discontent in other countries, and developing a nuclear weapon. Um, this statement may be familiar to some of you uh, here and at home. Um, it is a statement of President Obama. Uh, he offered this uh, characterization uh, in the interview with David Remnick, which was published, I guess, about a week and a half ago in The New Yorker. Um, it's, of course, a rather bleak and distressing view. But unfortunately, it does describe a good deal of present realities. Um, I would say it needs, uh, 
two, or rather three supplements. First, it describes the situation in the contemporary Middle East, uh, the chaos, the violence, the dysfunction, as a rather shapeless mass. And of course, each of the various countries and zones of conflict and dysfunction uh, within the region have their own idiosyncratic features. But there is one aspect which now serves, in my opinion, as an organizing principle. And that aspect is what uh, the President began with, which is the Sunni-Shiite conflict. This intra-Muslim conflict is very old. It is also likely to remain for a very long time, as its causes are very profound and very visceral. But in its long history, the conflict has had many phases, and some have been much more intense than others. This is one such phase, but it is the most intense in several hundred years. Another thing that needs to be noted about uh, within the, from the perspective of the Sunni-Shiite conflict, uh, Sunnis have usually been the winners in such conflicts, and they may still wind up to be the winners of the present conflict. But for the moment, the Shiites, or at least those Shiites who are led by the Islamic Republic of Iran, are winning, for example, in Syria. There are, I, we can go in later to the reasons for the success of Iran and its allies. Uh, I will mention just two here. Uh, first, on the one hand, Iran is the bearer of a revolutionary and uh, of revolutionary and hegemonic ambitions which really invigorated. And on the other hand, you have Sunni states, uh, the Sunni states which oppose it, which are today very weak and very divided. The main Sunni pushback is coming in the form of radical Sunni jihadist groups with, of course, some help from Sunni states. The third thing, uh, way in which I think this original statement needs to be supplemented is <coughs> as follows, and that uh, pertains to the behavior of outside powers. American power could tilt the scales in favor of the Sunni states. It has done so in the past. But um, on the face of it at the moment, America is disinclined to do so. Uh, there is one other outside power operative in this sphere at the moment, and that is Russia. And since Russia is supporting Iran, uh, that further tips, I think, the balance to the Shiites. Uh, I think at the moment, this is the general trend, and it's being augmented in part by the negotiations themselves. Um, the longer they go on, I think the more this will be the case, and still more will it be the case if an agreement is reached, which essentially leaves Iran with a substantial nuclear weapon breakout capacity. It needn't even reach the level of, of weaponry. But the net effect will be to consolidate, if not legitimate, the victory Iran is seeking and the role Iran claims for itself, uh, a, a, a consolidation both in the eyes of Iran and also of its enemies. Um, what will follow from this? Uh, it's obviously too soon to tell just how far-reaching the consequences <coughs> may be. Um, I will close by just offering one recent consequence, it seems to me, in the form of, a, of an event this past week. Um, this week, the Prime Minister of uh, Turkey, Tayyip Erdogan, was, uh, paid a visit to Tehran. Uh, he's been there before, uh, but uh, I believe the last time he was there uh, was 
early on, if not before, the Syrian civil war. Um, and of course, Erdogan has been in conflict with Iran, or Turkey has been in conflict with Iran over Syria and its civil war. Um, in the present case, he did not go to Iran, uh, Tehran, to um, try to persuade uh, the Iranians to <coughs> reduce their support for Assad. Um, rather, he went there to sign some new agreements, uh, trade agreements, perhaps an energy, a new energy agreement, a negotiation about the price of oil and gas that's uh, purchased from, from Iran. He also, uh, there is a, also a proposal that a political strategic coordination council be set up, which both of them, which will, uh, in which Iran and Turkey will coordinate things. Um, on his arrival and departure, he declared the following. He, uh, Iran is my second home. So it would appear that uh, Erdogan, from this remark and from also the circumstances of the trip, that um, Erdogan uh, thinks that Iran has essentially won this struggle, or at least this phase of it, and that he must make his peace with it. Um, <coughs> others may soon feel the same. Thanks very much, Orel. Um, Mike, and uh, move on. Thanks, Lee. <clears throat> so I'd like to uh, just talk a little bit about the, um, the strategic perception of the Obama administration, as, as I understand it, uh, <clears throat> because uh, I, I think there's been a kind of a revolution in American policy, a quiet revolution toward the Middle East um, that has gone completely unannounced, and it's really worthy of uh, more debate than it's gotten. Um, and I would characterize the revolution as um, the, uh, the gutting of Iran containment, uh, or almost the abandonment of Iran containment um, region-wide. And I, I see the, the, the nuclear agreement as, uh, as part of this wider shift in our, in our Iran policy. If you go back um, not too long ago, just a few years ago, in the Bush administration for sure, but I think even through into the, um, into the early o Obama administration, there was a view in Washington of the region um, as being divided between uh, uh, two different alliance systems. Um, for the sake of convenience, it's a little bit more complex than this, but let's call it the horizontal alliance and the vertical alliance. Mm -hmm. uh, and the horizontal alliance was uh, uh, Iran, Syria, Hezbollah, and, uh, and Hamas. Uh, and the vertical one would be uh, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, the other Gulf states, uh, Turkey to a certain, uh, certain extent. Um, and in 2011, the two really uh, were heightened. The differences between the two were heightened, and they, uh, and they came together in Syria. This was the point where the two alliance systems uh, clashed. The United States, I, I think, for the last 35 years has seen it as, it, uh, as its role in the region uh, has, been to contain, uh, has been to contain Iran. And the rhetoric of the Obama administration continues to talk that way. If you just look at the State of the Union address, um, the president talked about, uh, uh, about uh, Hezbollah and the need to contain Hezbollah and Iranian acts um, throughout the region. But if you actually watch what's been happening in Syria, uh, uh, a, major, uh, a major muscle movement by Iran in Syria, uh, a, major, um, a major intervention into the conflict by Hezbollah, and, and there's no record of, uh, of serious American attempts to counter it, even public statements against it. The Iranians are taking, uh, they're not just, they're not just uh, facilitating uh, Hezbollah on the ground in, um, in Syria. They're taking um, Iraqi Shiites, 
taking them to Iran, training them, uh, and then sending them as militia members to, to, to fight in Syria. Um, and there's with no pushback from the uh, Obama administration at all. So we have the rhetoric of, we have the rhetoric of containing them in the region, uh, and the reality of not really doing anything about it um, at all. In fact, turning a uh, turning a blind eye to it. Um, uh, why is that? I, th I think there are two major factors um, at work here. Um, one it is just a simple decision that the president made um, very early on. Exactly when we don't know, um, but. Uh, Tom Donilon, the former National Security Advisor, just as he left office, um, said that they ran a review uh, of Middle East policy, and they determined that the United States was overinvested in the Middle East. Um, and so uh, the Obama administration decided to pull back. Um, exactly how far? Not clear. Exactly in what way? <coughs> also not clear. But you can see it clearly in the body language of the administration, and specifically with respect to Syria. Um, the, one, the one line of continuity in the Syria policy is the desire of the president not to get involved. Um, I think that's the only sort of, uh, that's the only organizing principle of what we've actually done, as opposed to what we've said uh, in Syria. It is the president doesn't want to get, uh, uh, doesn't want to get involved. So the minute you say that, you say, well, we're going to tolerate a lot more disruption and a lot more uh, conflict in, in the region, um, then you have to answer, well, what are we going to put in its place? Um, and uh, you look across the region and you think, well, there's Iran, and you, s you can see objectively we have some overlapping interests. Let's say we're all opposed to al-Qaeda. Um, uh, we, we, we want stability in these different countries. Wouldn't, doesn't Iran want stability in Iraq? Doesn't Iran want stability in Syria? Perhaps we can work with them. And uh, lo and behold, the president actually said this in the, in the David Remnick <laughs> article, a passage that didn't get much attention. But he said, you know, if we could make Iran a more responsible player, this would be a really very good thing. Um, I don't think he's just musing out loud. I think that's actually the policy. The policy is to try to bring them in, um, make them a stakeholder, a part of the, of the, uh, uh, of the regional security architecture. Um, uh, we're not at the point where you can say there's an entente with Iran, but there's a, there's a, probing, uh, a, a probing effort, an investigation to see if maybe it isn't possible to, to come to some kind of understanding uh, with them. Uh, and then the second factor then that, that, that drives this is the focus of the administration primarily on the al-Qaeda threat. Uh, when they look at the, at the region, they say, what's the major threat to the United States from the, from the Middle East? Well, it's uh, al-Qaeda and the Sunni jihadis. And perhaps we can reach an accommodation with the, um, with the Iranians on that. So what, what that amounts to, though, when you start adding it all up, uh, whether, it's, whether it's a lot of decisions made willy-nilly or whether it's actually part of a coherent strategy to try to reach an entente with uh, Iran, it doesn't matter. It represents a jettisoning of traditional containment as we've seen it. Uh, because traditionally we saw ourselves as the leader of an alliance. That is, we were allied with the, uh, with the, with the vertical powers um, in, in trying to advance their interests against the entrance of, uh, interests of Iran and its, um, and its um, allies. The Israelis today are much more, uh, their, their interests line up almost perfectly with the, uh, with the horizontal powers. Um, and we have uh, moved very much against what the Israelis, what the Saudis, what other uh, members of that, uh, of that axis uh, think we should do with respect to Iran, not just on the nuclear question, but also on the, um, on the uh, regional issues. It's a major change in, in our policy. Uh, I don't understand um, why the administration feels um, that it's going to really work out in the long run, because as I look, if you just look at what's happening in, in Syria, 
uh, uh, Assad, you know, carrying out the wholesale uh, raising of neighborhoods, uh, torturing uh, children, raping women, uh, and so on. He is the greatest engine of, uh, uh, of uh, al-Qaeda that there is uh, in the Middle East. Um, the idea that we can somehow reach an accommodation with the Iranians and with, and with Assad where we will tamp this down together seems to me to be a completely losing strategy. And i just add one more point. As I understand Iranian policy historically, they really do aspire to hegemony in the region. This is debated, I know, among Iran experts. Uh, but I think they w see, as the United States recedes, they see themselves setting themselves up as the dominant power um, in the region. Uh, and I don't think a conciliatory U.S. policy is going to do anything to tamp down those ambitions, uh, which in the end are, are going to be sooner or later anti-American, anti-Western, um, and uh, anti-status quo. Mike, thanks very much, and thanks to, uh, thanks to Hillel and Ray as well for <clears throat> really establishing the structure in which I'd like to have the rest of our conversation go, and then the question and answer sh uh, session as well. <clears throat> Mike, let me, let me start with you then. Um, look, if, if you believe that the administration is abandoning a 35-year policy uh, of containment, Iran, and you believe that uh, the new policy of engaging the Iranians and uh, effectively balancing them against the Saudis is questionable. I mean, we have to – maybe we can look and say, well, containment didn't work. Uh, the Iranians are on the – perhaps on the verge of nuclear breakout. Uh, why is this necessarily – why do you see that this policy uh, will necessarily fail? Or what, what are your problems with that? Uh, well, uh, a number of problems. Let me just start with the, with the nuclear question. I, I think there's a contradiction in our policy. Um, we're like – with respect to the nuclear issue, we're like a policeman um, who's pointing a gun at a criminal and saying, <clears throat> drop it or I'll shoot. But our body language is like this. We're starting to, we're starting to run the other way and saying, drop it or I'll shoot. Uh, and the Iranians are reading that perfectly. So what we're doing is we are incentivizing them to wait us out, to lengthen the negotiations, to, to, to whittle away at us, to, uh, to break up our coalition. We're gonna, we would have a much better chance of getting what we want from the Iranians on the nuclear file um, if, in, in my view, if we put together a strong coalition against them. But we, ha we ourselves have split our own coalition. Our president is now going out and telling people in Congress who want to be tough with the Iranians that they are warmongers. He's telling the – he's telling the – he's saying publicly, he's signaling publicly that the Israelis are the biggest impediment to peace with the Iranians. Rouhani and Zarif, they are the peacemakers. The Israelis, the Saudis, the hardliners in Congress, they are the problem. Um, that, that, that isn't good w whether you agree with the, <clears throat> with, the, w um, with the analysis or not, or the analysis of the president. It's not good alliance maintenance, and it's not a good way of maintaining the pressure um, uh, on the Iranians. Um, and one, one, other, one, other, uh, one other fact there uh, is just what I said. Uh, the, the Iranians are an anti-status quo power. They are hostile to the United States. They are hostile to the, to the international system that we represent. Their rhetoric continues to emphasize their hostility to that system, <coughs> and I think we're kidding ourselves if we think that we're going to that they're going to become our partner. Ray, do you think? Uh, I mean, do you think that this is the best deal that we can get from the Iranians? I mean, Did I think that Mike is action? yeah. I think that Mike is suggesting well, we can we can do much better. But I mean, where do you think both uh, where do you think both U.S. policy is, and where are the Iranians? Uh, I would say that to some extent Mike is correct. 
Mike is always correct to some extent. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I would, uh, what I would say is that I think when, when the United States, when the administration and others are looking at the Middle East, there is an attempt to recalibrate and sort of move away from it. So there's a propensity to wind down the existing wars, uh, have a nuclear agreement with Iran, which imposes some restrictions on it, because if you want to sort of step away from the Middle East, you need to somehow resolve this issue in some way, uh, it, with some sort of an agreement, and also perhaps broker some sort of a framework agreement with the Palestinian and Israelis. So that's a sort of a view. Uh, and I think Mike is correct in saying that this view is trying to be transplanted on a region which is profoundly divided against itself. Now, Middle East is always a region that divides against itself. But the subject of this division, what's underlying these divisions are sectarian identities, which in essence means these divisions are gonna last much longer. Uh, I would say today what is defining the politics of the Middle East, the political culture, and the political alignments is Syria. If you don't have a Syria policy, you don't really have a Middle East <coughs> policy. If you don't have a Syria policy, you don't really have a counterterrorism policy because in a radicalizing political environment, militant actors tend to surge, whether it's from Al-Qaeda <coughs> and others. If you don't have a Syria policy, you don't have a human rights policy because, mm. you know, when, and we talk about a sort of a genocide taking place in the heart of the Middle East. And so long as this sectarian conflict takes place, so long as Iranians and Saudis line up on the different aspects of this conflict, both sides will try to enhance their capabilities. So therefore, at the time when you're negotiating a nuclear arms control agreement, the region is creating a situation where Iranians will have a greater interest in having nuclear arms, simply because the Iranians don't have the conventional military balance at their disposal. They don't have access to arms <coughs> markets abroad that the Saudis do. They don't have an indigenous conventional arms industry at home. The way they try to negate the advantages that the Saudis may have and others just in terms of inventory, is unconventional weapons and missiles as delivery systems and surrogate forces, whether it's Hezbollah and Shi militias and so on. So the region itself is behaving in a way that makes an incentive and motivation for nuclear arms greater, while at the same time you're trying to negotiate an agreement. That's the incongruity of this. I mean, the Middle East today can be viewed as a body that has cancer all over it, and the doctor says, I'm going to try to save that leg and that arm peace process and Iran arms control agreement, while the body is rotting away. Mm. I don't think unless some of the political complexion of Middle East changes, whatever agreements come about, whether in terms of Iranian agreement or the Palestinian-Israeli agreement, are <coughs> not being planted on a durable foundation. Well, um, th thanks, Ray. Uh, Halal, one of, the, um, one of the things that struck me is, <coughs> I mean, even here in the United States, we've debated this, uh, we've debated the uh, we've debated the regional issue in terms of, in sectarian terms, um, and we recognize that sectarian, sectarianism is an issue. But does it have to be put in those ways? I mean, is there no way to sort of uh, transcend the sectarian idea? It's, it's long occurred to me that the Saudis might be able to make a very reasonable argument, which I think both you and Mike hinted at, which is, look, the Saudis are a status quo power, or they're part of the U.S.-backed status quo order of the region, and the Iranians are a revolutionary or revisionist regime. So why have we put it in sectarian terms? Is that, will it always come back to that? 
Why have we put it in sectarian terms? I think or? in lots of ways we have. I think in lots of ways we've uh, that's we've understood it that way. But also I think, look, I mean, there's a lot of powerful messages coming from the region as well, from both the Iranians and maybe from the Sunni side as well, though less by uh, less by uh, more by omission from the Sunnis, I would say. I mean, I think if you look at it historically uh, over the you know the, the trajectory in the region, uh, there's a powerful internal dynamic that has led. Uh, to the revival of sectarianism. I'm going to say it, it was always there, very, very powerfully, and uh, a dynamic that's that's led to its revival, which has to do with the the failure of, of uh, modernity in the region. And one saw this primarily on the Sunni side for uh, you know beginning in the 60s and the and the early 70s, where <coughs> there was a recognition that the that the new modern Arab nation-states weren't really succeeding, weren't functioning very well, and which made people very receptive to the claim of, say, the Muslim Brotherhood that what was missing was Islam. Um, uh, over time, there came to be many other parties uh, uh, preaching the same message, except you know, offering different versions of it. That is, you had the 79 revolution in Iran, mm -hmm. which also said, the solution is, is Islam, uh, only it's uh, it's our kind, and um, so that set things you know in motion in that direction very very powerfully, and then I think what's really given it uh, very great vigor is um, what happened uh, going forward from 2011. I can see that particularly uh, powerfully as uh, Michael was saying in in Syria. Uh, where the where the sides are are explicitly now both uh, are sectarian that there's there's hardly anyone um, that has any weight on the scene that now speaks anymore in terms of of it being uh, a struggle that's not cast in sectarian terms but I think what what powerfully happened was that when you had the Arab revolts uh, this liberated the, the <coughs> you know there came to be yet another a phase of the notion something new is a, is is coming to uh, uh, to the fore, and what it could have been possibly a democratic reform, but what it seemed to be in so many places was uh, testimony to the power of Islamic movements. So all of that has built it up, uh, has has nurtured the uh, the force of Islamic sentiment. Um, but at the same time, so there's a kind of agreement that Islam is terribly important, but a disagreement about which, what, kind, which right. kind. Well, if, if so I, I don't think I don't think that that's been entirely, in a way, uh, I think driven by internal developments. What is the case, I think, is that the this here I would uh, borrow a little bit from what Mike was saying before that there was, however, um, the architecture of states and so on and so forth, mm -hmm. of alliances, um, it still existed and, op and look, was looked at in a different way by its, uh, one of the main leaders of that alliance was the United States. The tendency for us not to take an active role seeds, seeds the mm -hmm. dynamic to whatever parties are um, uh, operative in, on the scene that will view it in, in the way in which they Can want I just to. add one thing to sure. what Hilal was yeah. saying? I think one of the consequences of Arab Spring, which we kind of touched on, Hilal touched on it, is if 
new, perhaps, phenomenon in the East, the erosion of state power. And you see this in Yemen, Libya, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon. And when the state power begins to erode, these multi-confessional, multi-sectarian states, most populations tend to revert back to their primordial identities, whether it's the tribe, whether it's the religious sect, and so on. Yeah. So that further causes division. And when in such a milice where state power is being eroded, everybody's kind of reclaning themselves there's a lot of opportunities for both Iranians and Saudis, who are per fairly cohesive states, to essentially try to assert their power in an asymmetrical way. You know, you support this tribe against that tribe, this, sec this community against that community. So there's a lot more opportunity for Iranians to project their influence, and the Saudis are getting into this game as well. Uh, I mean, this is different from the pre 1950s that Mike mm -hmm. writes about. There was a division between radical republics and conservative monarchies, but states still could command ability to impose order on their multi-confessional communities. The state power's erosion is, I think, a serious cause of internal instability that feeds mm -hmm. external mischief. I'm, I'm gonna. Uh, Mike, um, I, I don't know if you wanted to respond, but I'm going to compel you to respond. <laughs> um, because I wanted to put it in terms of something that I, that I was thinking as I was talking to Halal, who gave me kind of a strange look when, he, when I said, yes, we're, we're talking about it in terms of sectarianism. And in fact, the, uh, the New Yorker article that the two of you mentioned, and I, I think this will come back around to this, why is the president of the United States talking about in, ter in terms of Sunni Shia? And Mike, I think that you said, you said things about that before. I think you find that uh, problematic, and so if you could, right? I, I do. I, th I would make a distinction between um, what we as analysts uh, might uh, identify as uh, drivers in the region or factors on the on the ground, and things that the United States government should talk about and focus on, um, both in terms of making strategy and in terms of um, of just its its public diplomacy. Um, I think it's um, I think it's a mistake for the a president or American officials in general to just talk in terms of Sunni and Shiite. Uh, I mean, the minute we do that, um, uh, you can just imagine it in a conversation. You know, if I said to you, you know, you know, the Catholics like you, right? The minute you put somebody in a box and suggest that their position comes from some of their primordial identity, they they recoil and they think, wow, he's really got a problem with Islam. So just on that level, I think it's a mistake. But I also think it's a mistake in terms of strategy. I think that uh, all that uh, Hillel and Ray said about the erosion of state power, um, it's all true. Um, but in terms of strategizing, the United States still should be focusing on states. The, the, those are the elements that have the most power and the most influence. And that's what the essence of international politics in the, in, everywhere and in the Middle East still is, is states. So that's, that's what we need to think about. I also think that... My own reading of our primary interests or threats from the region, threats to our primary interests, focuses on Iran because Iran is a nuclearizing state. Uh, it has, it, ha it, 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 it capabilities are intentions, and nobody has, uh, uh, nobody has uh, lethal capability married to nefarious intent like the Iranians, and so that's where we should be, um, where we should be focused. Uh, I also think it, we get into we, we get our we wrap ourselves into knots when we start trying to um, uh, understand things in terms of sectarianism, um, because anybody who's followed the Middle East for any length of time knows that the the alliances and the alignments in the Middle East have a kind of kaleidoscopic quality. You know, a, a big event will change and 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 people will will move in really surprising 
uh, ways. I mean, who would have predicted that, that, that Saudi Arabia and Israel would be sending this such, such identical messages to Washington now, like, they are, uh, like they are now? If you looked at the, at the sectarian rhetoric of Saudi Arabia and you looked at the identity of Israel, you'd say these two powers can never be in alignment, and they're in alignment. And this happens all the time in the, in the, in the Middle East. Even in the Iranian alliance system, the, the Iranians have allied often with, Sunni, with, uh, with Sunnis, even radical Sunnis who hate Shiites. They, um, uh, they, they're, they're aligned with, they have been historically aligned with Hamas. There's, that, that relationship is complex right now. Um, they have, uh, but, but, the, but the, the track record is there. They have, um, uh, they have, uh, they have aided the elements of the Taliban in Afghanistan, even though they hate the Taliban. Um, they have had a working relationship of one sort or another with al-Qaeda in Iraq. Uh, that's been well documented by our intelligence uh, services. Uh, uh, their, their ally, Syria, also s- streamed al-Qaeda fighters into Iraq to, uh, to kill Shiites and to kill Americans. Uh, so uh, we, I think if we focus on, the, on that, it's not an enduring – these are not enduring qualities of the region. The alignments based on sectarianism are not – uh, are not the sort of big enduring aspects that you can actually base a strategy on uh, uh, long term. And w- one last point, I'm sorry to drone on about it, it's just that the president has said several times, we're not going to get involved in Syria because that's a sectarian war and we would just be taking one side, meaning the Saudi side. Mm-hmm. And so we have branded our side, the Saudi side, as the sectarian actor. And we have given the Iranians a pass on this. When uh, the Assad regime is a profoundly and viciously sectarian actor. Uh, you only need to watch what it's doing, uh, the, the way it's slaughtering civilians wholesale to realize the, 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 the depth of it. So we have, again, in our own public messaging, we, we ended up kind of debasing and, um, uh, and uh, denigrating our own alliance partners um, uh, to the advantage of the Iranians. So I, I think it's a mistake. Yeah. Well, l- I mean, let's come back to the states <laughs> issue, and, and, and I, I want to put this out to, to all three of you. Look, if, if, if it is important to deal with the region in terms of states, in terms of American national interest, and in terms of that's the best way to understand the region, and if there is some movement right now from the White House to want to basically rehabilitate Bashar al-Assad in Syria because we'd rather deal with that regime than deal with non-state actors, that's one thing. The second thing is if we can come back to the JPA, um, look, one of the advantages that, that Iran has is it's a state with state institutions. I imagine the White House believes that because it has state institutions, it can both be engaged and deterred, unlike non-state actors. As much as you would like to, you can't really sit down with the al-Qaeda leadership. Um, you can, that's what drone strikes are for. They can't really be engaged or deterred the way, the way a regime can. So just to come back to the deal again, um, is it a good thing just to have a deal? Or is the problem in the is the problem insofar as we are strengthening the state system of the Middle East? Uh, I'll just start out. I, I, I think there's a critical uh, inflection point here uh, for the way sort of Washington looks at the Iran issue, and that's has a lot to do about how you see the election of President Rouhani. Uh, I think for many in the United States government and other governments. Uh, and I was to include probably the entire five plus one in that, is there is a perception that uh, President Rouhani is interested in having a nuclear agreement with some restrictions that are pronounced, 
and is interested, therefore, using that nuclear agreement to strengthen the position of pragmatic forces at home. And therefore, once the position of the pragmatic forces are strengthened in Iran, then perhaps Iranian foreign policy could be moderating in the Middle East as such. Right. Uh, so in that sense, you're kind of looking at the nuclear arms control agreement, not just as a means of imposing some restrictions on Iran's nuclear appetite, but to rearranging the sort of domestic politics of Iran in terms of empowering a specific faction, and therefore that faction will have a more responsible foreign policy right. abroad. Uh, so it, it, the, the threshold question is, how do you see the election of President Rouhani? Uh, in that particular sense, arms control takes a very diff different perspective. I think it's very difficult to, for outside powers to try to adjust the factional balance within Iran because we don't understand it well. It's a country whose politics are opaque and elusive. And, and, and so I, I, I think to kind of try to manipulate the factions within Iran is a very difficult thing. Uh, and then comes the very confused power structure within Iran, where the, you know all these different actors with their own with their own strengths and and, and their own and their own say. Uh, I think President Rouhani wants an arms control agreement as a means of relieving the sanctions and preserving as much of Iran's nuclear assets as possible. But at the same time, I think Iranians are fairly unsentimental about their nuclear diplomacy. They're also willing to have confrontations with the United States and its allies elsewhere. But this is, this is a kind of a longer context here. Americans, American administrations going back to 1970s, where arms control became an important issue, have always viewed arms control and detente as joined together. While our adversaries, whether it's the Soviets or Iranians, never really saw them together. The Soviets could easily negotiate a SALT agreement with the United States and invade Afghanistan. They saw no necessary connection between the two. So Iranians can easily attempt to undermine the American presence in the Gulf, while at the same time trying to negotiate arms. Right. They're not sentimental about this. <coughs> we tend to view arms control as plying open a sort of a different relationship with the country and a different relationship with that country in the region. And that's not the Iranians' fault. That's just the way we approach arms control. Halal, I mean, uh, I was going to ask you something uh, specifically as well. Okay. I mean, do you think a... Do you think a nuclear? Do you think that we believe, or do you think the administration believes, that a nuclear weapons program makes the Iranians more responsible? That it makes them, it calms them down. You mean an agreement? Yes. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, an agreement and a program having the actual bomb would calm them down and make them more responsible actors. I mean, what's your? Yeah, you know, I, it's a little hard uh, for me to to say what the administration <laughs> believes, uh, and some because sometimes. Uh, what it says is, is 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 hard to understand altogether, but I, I would say there, insofar as let's say that there is this notion that, um, in a way, uh, it would piggyback in a way on your suggestion, Michael, that we would be better off if there was a still a vigorous st state structure in the in the region, uh, that Iran remains such a state, and right. therefore there is a plus in trying to. Uh, deal with it as such, uh, and that we can deal with it, as Reyes just said, because we have a new, there's a new leadership there. This seems to me uh, uh, the most recent version of a long debate about what Iran is. Hmm. Um, right. It was a, <coughs> you know, it was a, 
uh, and what it wants. Um, and um, it was posed, it's been posed, I think, about every six to nine months by Hen Henry Kissinger. It's sort <laughs> of, uh, Iran, he, he tells, uh, he, he says to the Iranians, you have to choose between being a state and or a, a movement. <laughs> and um, they have not seen the necessity of that <laughs> as yet. And on either ground, um, it's, they have stated what their one principal interest of theirs as a state as well as a, a movement, and that is to um, um, uh, see their region, the Gulf in particular, um, be uh, evacuated by foreign forces, namely us. So um, it, in a way the question comes around, and that's their interest as they see it as either a state or as a, a, a movement or as the leader of a Shiite alliance. And the question is, is, is that in any respect our interest? And um, uh, it could be if we have decided that we no longer care about the region, right. or no care, and particular don't no longer care about the Gulf. Don't see any particular reason why we should be uh, what we have been for seventy years—the guarantor of, of Gulf security, Gulf resources, and so forth. Um, on that basis, you could certainly see a, a deal, and whether it, it's facilitated or not by by a nuclear um, weapons agreement. I'm not sure even the agreement matters. If if you, it it then the then the motive I think for seeking the agreement is something else, right. rather, which is for that for some reason or other this administration thinks um, that it ha the, the the interest it most vigorously states as critical are two. One is terror to uh, protect the the homeland from terrorism, mm -hmm. Al Qaeda, etc. And the other is to uh, manage a global regime uh, which restricts WMD. So I'm not sure we would even care about, mm. uh, on, on this basis, on whether they, we reached an agreement with them on nuclear weapons if there wasn't somehow this overarching um, uh, claim that WMD matters to oh. us. M Mike, is this how you see this? I mean, is that how you see the larger regional strategy right now? The White House basically wants the Saudis and the Iranians to balance each other out. So, see you guys later. We're, sh we're sure it's going to be tough, tough going at first, but then you'll eventually realize it's not in your best interest to slaughter each other. Everything will calm down, but we're out of here. What's your sense of... Yeah, I, I, I think that, that that's where they've kind of come by default. The sing uh, as I said before, the <coughs> single most important decision they made was <coughs> was just to pull back. And then uh, once you've made that decision, then you, it means you're going you're gonna to tolerate a lot more violence. With respect to the agreement, m my, own, my own feeling is that um, uh, there will be no final agreement. Um, it's a, I, f I found Ray's comments very interesting about, um, about them focusing more <coughs> on the sunset clause than on the, than on the mm -hmm. actual terms about enrichment and so forth, and that they might dismantle be willing to dismantle a lot in order to say get a five-year, um, a five-year sunset clause, because then they then the negotiators could say to the supreme leader, in five years' time, I can have I can give you a full-blown nuclear program, free and clear, no sanctions, and so on. That's interesting, but I I suspect that the positions that they're going to have to take in the negotiations <coughs> and the positions that are are the minimum that we can accept from them 
is going to is going to leave a huge gap still, and the president won't be able to cut the uh, to cut so the deal. So that's what you think. There's not going to be a permanent agreement. I think They'll the interim agreement. I think there's nothing more permanent than the temporary. The temporary <laughs> agreement. The temporary agreement is going to be the. It's just going to be rolled and over and rolled over. And one of the reasons until until what? Well, the, that the, he'll, we'll we'll have to see. I mean, the, the 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 two things that could that could force the president's hand are action by Congress. Um, or, or an Israeli, uh, an Israeli attack, and he will work to, I think, uh, forestall both. Um, as you saw in the State of the Union address, I mean, he came out clearly and told Congress, "Don't mess with my negotiation." Yeah. The other thing that could forestall it is is precipitous Iranian behavior. I mean, if they if they overplay their hand and they embarrass him, then then we won't be able to. What he what he, what the president needs to be able to say at any given stage is, there are negotiations going on. They're very difficult. They're bearing fruit. I, I don't want to give up this opportunity to, uh, to reach an agreement and to avoid war. Do you want war? I don't want war. I want negotiations. Huh. So as long as, there's, as long as it's flexible enough that he can plausibly make the case that something good is going on, he'll go with that. Can I just say one thing about the sort of a architecture, that's a popular word these days, right. of this conversation? Okay. So much of everything that's being said about Syria, about Saudi Arabia and elsewhere, has to do with your perception of American interest and American power. If you believe that America's interests are vital in the Middle East, mm -hmm. then you have a certain outlook. But also it's, the, it's about your approach to American power. Uh, I think there's a lot of thinking in the foreign policy intelligentsia, maybe within the administration, is that <coughs> exercise of American power in the Middle East in the aftermath of 9-11 has caused instability, mm -hmm. chaos, and disarray. So in some way, the application and mobilization of American power has itself been a source of instability. That America has been presumptuous for too long in telling these local actors what their interests are and how they can resolve their interests. So we should kind of pull back. That's one view. And that view is also complemented by suggesting that American interests in the Middle East are not that substantial. To be fair, Mike is a historian of Eisenhower period, and I have dabbled in it. All American presidents have been frustrated by the Middle East. All American presidents have found the Middle East problems intractable and frustrating, but they thought Middle East matters. I mean, I think we're beginning to start thinking in the aftermath of the 9-11 engagement in Middle East that the problems are intractable, insoluble, and perhaps they don't matter. Right. Or they matter And there are all these opportunities. Less than we imagine. Sure. So and, there are, and, and also the region itself. Do they have, per, do per, they have a point on that? Do they have a point? I, I, Look, when I, we talk I, about I, moving towards energy independence, if the, right. if the Persian Gulf is going to become much less important, do they have a point? Well, it's I not think that it's insignificant, but just not what it was during the Eisenhower period, during, during the, the post-war period. Yeah. Uh, I think if you're kind of looking at and making a case for American engagement, which I think is important, you have to have two additional points to it. Number one, this particular <coughs> engagement in a region of this degree of chaos is going to be costly. Number two, there is no, you're embarking on a, on a journey whose conclusion is uncertain. I think it'll take a long time for Middle East to sort itself out, given the sectarian knot that it finds itself. So you have to make a case for a costly American commitment to the region in today's environment. Is it worth it, Halal? 
Mike, and then then actually I, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask both of you. You can just sort of answer that as as briefly or as uh, lengthily as you like, and then I I would like to move to a, a, a twenty to thirty minute Q and A session. Well, let me follow with uh, on what Ray said about the you know the uh, the long term and uh, difficulties American presidents and administrations have met with, and uh, you know a certain. Uh, but we thought it mattered, and um, and in particular, we thought that you know when it became very dysfunctional, uh, we needed to intervene. Uh, one such moment was uh, 1990-91, uh, when in the aftermath of the Iran-Iraq War, uh, Iraq invades Kuwait. Uh, <coughs> Essentially, what we uh, were trying to do there was um, um, to restore order. And um, we did restore order. Uh, on the other hand, um, uh, one can, I think, reasonably trace 9-11 um, uh, to the manner in which we <laughs> restored order. Mm -hmm. That is, it created a another set of problems. So there is. If you look at it from that way, uh, then there is a, you know, there's an argument to be said. Every time you try to fix things here, it only creates a new problem, and the problems can come closer to home. Um, but I would say I think that may also be the situation we are in right now. That is, um, uh, we we sort of can't live with it and can't live without it, uh, an engagement because um, it, it it's not. Uh, one can't say with great certainty that the problems of the region, even if we are withdrawing from it, will not come home to us, either in the form of terrorism or in other kinds of problems. And that's, in a way, I think the mood right now is, no, we can keep it away. It, you know, we can withdraw far away from it. And in a way, it seems to me that the president's statements about the Middle East suggest, you know, will it if they're going to be this crazy, let them, you know, let it be on someone else's watch. But that I think is, uh, it's not proven to be a very successful approach in the past. Mike, would you like to? Thanks. Uh, so the question is, um, is the is is that a, what we're we are ascribing to the president? He may or may not have this attitude that we, it's not that important. Yeah, is I mean, that correct? Well, um, before I answer that, let me just say. It's certainly a politically winning position. Right? It's, a, it's, it's remarkable. If you go back to the Syria, <coughs> to the question in September about whether we should attack Syria, uh, there was, a, there was an, uh, an, a quiet but palpable bipartisan agreement that it was, that it was an unattract on the Hill, I'm saying, that this was a very unattractive prospect. Um, uh, uh, obviously, Republicans and Democrats expressed themselves differently on this, but uh, but there's an, an, an anti-interventionist mood across the country. And it's really striking to me when I talk to, to um, uh, Republican audiences how much, um, uh, how much the appetite for, for a, a more forward-leaning uh, American policy has evaporated. John McCain is really an outlier now. Um, and, and it's also very, um, uh, very striking to me when I talk to younger audiences uh, they have an attitude toward American power that is very different from um, from my own. I'm talking about even younger conservative audiences. They uh, um, they really have a more kind of libertarian, uh, Rand Paulish attitude than 
um, uh, than, than I do. Um, so, so the president, um, however much foreign policy experts uh, might not like the president's Middle East policy, it's not harming him at all in, in, um, domestically. I tend to agree with Hillel. I think that sooner or later the problems of the region are going to come after us whether we want them to or not. Um, but I would put it in a uh, – so that, that's my own view. But I would say something a little different about the, the president, and that is to say the, the current policy. If we, if we conclude that pulling back from the Middle East is a good idea, I think there are, I think there are way, better and worse ways to do it. And I think that the way that we are doing it is, is making it more likely that we're going to have to come back in in a unilateral fashion than less likely. The whole point about alliances and uh, building up alliances and building up partner capacity and so forth of others mm. is so that there are tools and instruments that we, can, that we can use to alleviate threats without the direct application of American, um, of, of American force. And I, I think that the way we're pulling back is, is strengthening the most malign elements in the region, Iran and, and al-Qaeda. And Syria is the great example. I, I, I thought Ray put it um, quite beautifully when he said, if you don't have a Syria policy, you don't have a Middle East policy. And if you don't have a Syria policy, you don't have a counterterrorism uh, policy. And we don't have either. Um, uh, we don't have either right now. And there are yeah. the other – did you pay – are you saying that you didn't I pay also said, you said, yeah. Yeah. No, he, he said you didn't care about human rights. Yeah, said, no, we don't have a Syria yeah. policy. You don't have human a human rights policy. policy. No, no, anyway, no. He talks I, about that all the time. And the, the, other, the other thing is I think that there are other, there are other consequences to this that, um, that, that are important as well, and that's the effect it has on our other alliance partners elsewhere in the world. Um, the Japanese right now are very nervous about wondering whether we're going to be there – uh, if if uh, if they find themselves um, in a pinch, so if you're going to pull back, I think you have to do it in such a way that that leaves your major alliance partners with a feeling that you're that that you're there for them, and that you that you understand that what you're doing is putting them in a difficult position. And I don't think we've done that. I'll just say that uh, I do believe it matters, and I do believe we should be engaged. But if you look at the American foreign policy attention in the aftermath of the collapse of the Soviet Union, which was a fairly unusual period in American history in the sense 1990. Uh, we can, tend to go into the cycles of, even, even during the Cold War, during the cycles of intense activity and retrenchment. There's seldom a sort of a balance in America's approach to international relations. And we're in a period of retrenchment. Uh, and for those, myself included, Mike and others, who believe in a more robust, I guess is the word for it, American engagement in the Middle East, you have to just oppose that to the fact that we're in an era of retrenchment and the fact that the position of retrenchment that may be identified with the president as well is politically unassailable. Uh, if, if the president travels to Chicago, San Francisco, Seattle, Atlanta, his position is politically uncontested. Uh, so that's just the period we're in. Is we we re-examining our role in international relations with an eye toward retrenchment? Uh, America does go through these cycles, and when retrenchment gets you into trouble, you become hyperactive. <laughs> when hyperactivity gets you in trouble, you go to <laughs> retrenchment. That's just that's just where we are. Uh, I'll did you want to? Oh, yeah, I just wanted to add one more thing about this. The the what Michael was just talking about the character of our our disengagement and. Um, acting as responsible uh, alliance leaders uh, or responsibly towards our allies, or maybe now former allies, but 
what, what is very peculiar about this is if we, if we really do mean to leave the region and we have good reasons for it, you can, you can leave, I think, in several ways. One of them is um, you leave your <coughs> former allies, you're leaving your former allies to figure out how they're going to deal with the, their, their situation, but you leave them free to do it. Um, uh, you, uh, the, what we seem to be doing is leaving them to figure this out on their own and at the same time blessing their enemy. Uh, by Do you want to be more specific about that? I mean, I think I know what you mean, but I mean... Well, you know, I mean, obviously the Israelis have to figure out what, how they're going to deal with the new situation. The Saudis have to figure it out. The Jordanians have to figure right. out. If the Egyptians ever figure out what's going on domestically, they'll have to figure it out. Um, and maybe they could figure it out or come up with a, a strategy that would deal with Iran to the satisfaction of their security interests. But... Um, uh, but we are adding to that burden the sort of legitimation of, um, of Iranian power and, uh, and, and power of its alliance. And that's a burden we don't really need to, to right. impose on them. That's, that, uh, and that's what makes, it, makes this, this, the character of this withdrawal uh, uh, very weird and even bizarre. And, and various ways deterring both the Israelis and, the, uh, and our traditional Gulf Arab allies as well. Yeah. <coughs> whether it's from acting, <coughs> excuse me, in Syria, or whether it's from acting regarding the Iranian nuclear program. I mean, if you really strange. don't think it's terribly important to us, and I, and there is an I, I a like, like why why stop them from if it's not yeah. that big a deal to us? Why for yeah. all don't do that? Um, all right. Well, thank you. Why don't we open it up to uh, to some questions and answers? If you would wait, I think we're gonna have a microphone circulating. We do indeed have we that do. microphone circulating. You just wait one second, and I'm going to ask you, please, when you ask a question, to make it a question and keep it short. Um, this gentleman here in the blue tie. Gentlemen, my name is Joe Tabit. I'm with uh, Middle East Broadcasting Networks, Al Hurra. I'm the Pentagon correspondent. Uh, my question is for Mr. Ray and Mr. Michael both. Uh, don't you believe that Iran and Saudi Arabia, they haven't both done anything to preserve American interest in the region. They have both, we know, as we know, supported terrorism throughout the, the last two decades, <coughs> even through September 11th. Do you agree with that? And one more thing is, maybe Mr. Ray would, uh, would answer this. Uh, if we have free elections now in Iran and Saudi Arabia, what would be the outcome in both elections? Uh, I, if we have free elections in the Islamic Republic, it is, I'm reasonably confident that the Islamic Republic would be rejected by a large swath of the population. Uh, I think there is an unusual gap between the ruling elite in Iran and the larger public. The ruling elite subscribes to a certain Islamist ideology and has a certain vision, while the masses are more cosmopolitan, Western-oriented. So there's a huge gap between the state and society in Iran. Uh, I, I, I just don't know what elections look like in Saudi Arabia, but I suspect in a free election in Saudi Arabia, you see the rise of an immoderate government. Mike can speak about this more authoritatively than I can, uh, because I just don't know the complexities and, and contours of Saudi public opinion. But I'm reasonably certain in case of Iran that the experience of the experiment of Islamic Republic launched in 1979 would be a rejected one. I, 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 I just want to say, I'm, I mean, um, I'm 
<coughs> I'm, I'm careful always, I know you didn't ask me, but I'm always careful answering that question because, I, I mean, we hear this talk um, going around Washington a lot that somehow the Iranians are naturally better allies than the Saudis. And I think that, that once that regime falls down, that the Iranians are naturally better allies, and, and which doesn't make sense to me. I mean, we wouldn't say that about any other people in the world that the Iranians are more naturally moderate than the Saudis who are naturally extremist. I mean, if we're talking about different political issues and different cultural issues, that's one thing. But to make that comparison, I have, I, I, I think that's a, uh, a touchy comparison. I think that we need to sort of rethink this before we ask and answer it. No, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, my, my, but you, you had a question for, for uh, Mike as well. No, I, just I wanted, I wanted to know to see if, if you gentlemen, you agree with this, that both states, Iran and Saudi Arabia, they have supported terrorist groups in the last two, three decades. No, I mean, either, I, either, I would, uh, either supporting the Hezbollah or the Hama or Hamas, <coughs> even as you, as you may know, Saudi Arabia has supported the Taliban, <coughs> Lashkar Taiba in Pakistan, Hamas, and all the madrasas, the extremist madrasas in the, throughout the, the Middle East. So I would, I would make, a, I'd make a distinction, uh, a, a big distinction between Iran and, and Saudi Arabia. Um, and I would say that, uh, that Saudi Arabia uh, in the Middle East over the last decade, two decades, three decades, five decades, um, has been a, a status quo power. Uh, there, and Iran has not, since the revolution, Iran has been dedicated to overturning the power structures in the Middle East, and in particular, the, power, uh, uh, the order that we represent. It's been attacking us, and it's been carrying out a proxy war against our allies. Our, our, our allies in the Middle East um, uh, extremely attractive, and do they have systems that are in keeping with our basic values in the United States? No, but they're still our allies. Uh, they're still our allies, and there's a fundamental difference between – there's no such thing in Saudi Arabia. There's no Saudi equivalent to the Quds Force, um, and there's, there's, no, uh, there's no arm of the Saudi state that does the kind of things abroad um, with, his, with, his, with, his much, uh, with as much power and as much focus of the state as, um, as well, uh, the Quds Force has. Obviously, have not been reading the Iranian press. I, <laughs> I don't – no, no, no. It's, it's interesting. It's not just the Iranian press because it's seeped into – <laughs> one of the one of the funny things that's happened in, in the uh, in the la since the nuclear deal, uh, or since the election of uh, of, uh, of Rouhani, is um, is a kind of equivalence not just between Saudi Arabia and Iran that you suggested, but also between our political system and the Iranian. You, I, you keep hearing, well, you have your hardliners and we have our hardliners. Ray, Ray, Ray pointed out it's it's not equivalent because they're I, not I, I they're not a democracy. Are here on this but panel. Ray, Ray pointed <laughs> Ray pointed out that uh, that it's a very difficult thing to uh, calibrate somebody else's politics through a foreign for a foreign policy. The other thing is Middle Easterners manipulate us all the time. Every every Middle Eastern state has what I call barbarian handlers or uh, infidel handlers. These are the guys who came over, did PhDs at the University of Michigan. Right, and they go back. Not just Michigan. Wherever, wherever, wherever. They, they, they did PhDs. <laughs> they know us. They know us backwards and forwards, um, and they're very good at presenting their their opaque and non-democratic processes in their countries as some kind of mirror image of of ours, and they do it to manipulate us, and we're suckers for it, like you wouldn't believe. Um, gentlemen, here, just hold on, wait. Mohsen Shabazi with Webster University. I'd oh, like I'm to sorry, ask. Sorry, can you say that again? 
Hussein Shabazi with Webster University. Okay. I'd like to ask uh, my question uh, from uh, uh, Dr. Takia. Uh, uh, Dr. Duran was uh, brave enough to somehow predict that uh, there won't be a final agreement and the GPA will be renewed uh, different cycles. I'd like to ask your comments on his uh, uh, I, uh, insights that uh, justification would be Obama's, uh, all the things that uh, he said, uh, that the process is working. And uh, if you do disagree with his uh, insights or prediction, what would you see if uh, the final deal is not reached? In other words, uh, what would be the prospects, what kind of aspects we would have uh, in terms of uh, the uh, relationship? Thank so you. As, as I understand it, he was asking me to comment on the fact that Mike <laughs> did not think a final, you don't, don't believe that a final deal is, is in hand. It will, could, could be reached in six months to a year and so on. And that I'm braver than you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I think if the Iranians get the right down, sunset clause, they may be willing to make concessions on the character, technological character of their nuclear program because those restrictions will evaporate in a matter of five years, seven years, or what have you. So I think I would focus on what kind of a sunset clause, the duration of the sunset clause they'll be offering. Because then those restrictions are interim restrictions and you can rebuild facilities that are shuttered, dismantled, and so forth. So I think that's what they're going to be looking at. Now, whether the international community will give them the sunset clause they're looking for, the international community has already agreed that the arms control agreement should have a sunset clause, which is actually unprecedented for history of arms control, if you think about it. So now the question is, how long should the sunset clause last? So if they get the right one, I think it could be a comprehensive agreement, uh, a comprehensive agreement that will lapse <coughs> at some point. Uh, in absence of that... Uh, I think I would say both Iranians and the <coughs> members of the 5 plus 1 see no alternative to the negotiations. Uh, the table has been in existence since 2002. It's been in existence when there was no progress. It's been in existence when there has been progress. It's been in existence when Iranian government has changed hands from reformists to hardliners to pragmatists, so on. Uh, I think the, in, the international community doesn't want to revisit or visit the option of what it should do if diplomacy is viewed as failing. And I don't think Iranians want to leave the table because the table does have some advantages for them. Uh, it gives some degree, potentially they, in the, at the table they could get an agreement that's satisfactory to them. At the table they can essentially divide the international community and perhaps erode the sanctions regime. And so long as they're at the table, they shield their nuclear program for military reprisals <coughs> from the regional states, Israel, what have you. So we're in a situation where both sides have an investment in perpetuation of the table. And both sides want to make progress at that, but the existence of table itself has always been almost independent of progress that isn't made. Now there's a perception of progress and so on, there's going to be more incentive in this prolongation. So I, I suspect that I do think there is a possibility of a comprehensive agreement along the lines that I suggested with the right sunset clause for the Iranians. Uh, if they get that. And, but in absence of that, I think the negotiations are likely to perpetuate because nobody wants to contemplate an alternative to the existing process. Hello, I, would you like to I yeah. just wanted to ask uh, Ray uh, a question <coughs> close from this. I mean, in a way, 
uh, Michael is suggesting uh, agrees with you that the table is attractive, but that they'll stay at it forever. Uh, uh, it's been on since 2002. Right. But what, from the Iranian point of view, I mean, I can see why we might want to keep it in, uh, at the table if, for example, we, if, for example, <coughs> the interim agreement was, as you put it, the permanent agreement, um, because it would allow us to say that we have constrained the, the, the program and we would be uh, hovering uh, in, you know, in some, some zone fairly well defined of their breakout capacity. But what would the, how would the Iranians feel about just staying there indefinitely? What would they gain and what would they lose by that? No, I think if you kind of look at the history of these negotiations, there's been periods where negotiations have not happened for a period of six months, a year. And both sides have tried to increase their leverage for prospective resumption of negotiations. Iranians by increasing their nuclear resources and capabilities and the international community by trying to attempt to have more sanctions regime. I think if there's a breakdown of negotiations, that doesn't mean everybody permanently walks away from the table. Everybody goes back to their pre-existing positions. Iranians will try to enhance their nuclear capabilities by additional centrifuge capability. And the United States and the international community will try to enhance the sanctions. It's and then the idea is that they can return to the table. Uh, so I do think if there is a breakdown of negotiations, that doesn't mean the table disappears. But isn't it might reappear when both sides increase their leverage. But isn't the, but the, very, the two sides have been increasing their leverage. But in the case of the Iranians, the leverage amounts to uh, a, a dramatically greater uh, nuclear program than they had in 2002. Yeah, yeah. I think so, you'll see. Yeah. Um, if if the negotiations break down and we walk away, everyone walks away from the table, they're walking away with a pretty close to a breakout capacity, and uh, that remains <coughs> a, fr a frightening prospect. Yeah, yes. and that breakout capacity would be more enhanced. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Road here. Harold? Harold Road, Gatestone Institute. All four of you seem to agree that America is pulling back from the Middle East. Since this is the case, how do you explain Secretary Kerry's uh, uh, focus, his passion for the Arab, for, for the Palestinian-Israel thing? Yeah, I, 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 I sort of try to allude to that. I think to, there are two problems that the United States wants to deal with through the medium of diplomacy. That's the Iranian nuclear issue and the Palestinian-Israeli issue. Uh, the question is whether those issues can be addressed in a region which is so chaotic, disorderly, and at odds with itself. But that's, as I said, attempting to save an arm and a leg in a body that's riddled with cancer. Uh, it, it, is, it is true that Secretary Kerry has made a lot of trips to the Middle East, uh, to, to Israel and, and Palestinian territories, and will continue to do so. I think they're trying, but it's a diplomatic attempt to resolve two conflicts, which I think are going to be difficult to resolve and stabilize in midst of a region that's so infused with turmoil. Well, I, I would only add, uh, thanks, Harold, uh, the question, but the, um, in a way, they've tried, uh, Kerry's diplomacy or the administration's diplomacy is trying to solve the three problems they've identified, which is in, through the Syrian negotiations. And that seems to be directed to, towards what they identify as the third problem, the terrorist problem. So, um, uh, but as you said before, they don't really have a Syria policy that, it, that could be effective and probably in a certain way 
Um, the other negotiations may fall down partially because of that. Mike, would you like to add? Um, I, I would just observe that uh, that it, it, there's, it's a contradiction in the policy, and they they haven't um, uh, they give explanations as to why this is the, why they're doing this, but it doesn't really add up to a coherent view, um, a, as far as I can see. I would add just a couple of points on it. One is that it is interesting that those two issues, the, the Iranian nuclear question and the, um, the uh, Israeli-Palestinian issue, um, those are the two issues that are most concerned to American voters. Um, so um, if, you, um, if part of what you want to do is to reassure an American electorate that pulling back is not, gonna, uh, is not going to uh, um, harm things that they care about, then, then remaining active in those areas would be a, um, a good <laughs> domestic strategy. I'm not suggesting that that's all it is, but it's, a, it's, an, it's an interesting aspect of it. And also... Um, I think that the, the Israeli-Palestinian question um, is really um, a function of, uh, of uh, Secretary Kerry's own personal agenda as much as it is the president's uh, agenda. I think this, this, is, this is the assumption well known among all the, uh, all the, the parties uh, to the negotiation that, that Secretary Kerry went to the president and made a pitch to do this. The president had <coughs> attempted to solve the Israeli-Palestinian uh, issue and came to the conclusion that that neither party really wanted to do what he thought was necessary and so he had decided to pull back from it but secretary Kerry wanted to do it so the president gave him that uh, gave him some rope to go out there and um, and see what he could drum up thanks uh, another question Abe yes. yeah um, the <laughs> attempt to solve the Syrian chemical weapon issue separate from the Syrian problem as a whole is in a way the third uh, part of this uh, uh, policy uh, to, in addition to the two that Ray mentioned. And um, that seemed to be similar in a sense in that it was trying to solve something that was important because of its nonproliferation aspects but without really getting to the, uh, the basis of the, of the issue. And of course the President mentioned that in the State of the Union and presented it as, as a success. But just recently uh, the administration has now started talking about some of the problems in that agreement, the fact that the uh, Syrian government doesn't seem to be as cooperative as it had been, the pace is very slow, and so forth and so on. And I was just wondering if anyone had any comments about what 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 they made of uh, this sort of change of the atmospheric surrounding uh, that agreement. M Mike, do you want to start with that? Uh, yeah, well, um, I, the the administration was very careful um, to s while it was while it was. Uh, Criticizing the Assad regime um, for for not delivering more weapons, it was very careful not to suggest that there was any threat of force coming from the the administration. And uh, the way I read the deal from moment one was that it was a, a way for the United States to leave the battlefield with honor. Uh, so the president uh, the president had boxed himself in with his red line comments to where he actually had to take action in Syria which he did not want to take and which nobody in Congress really wanted, wanted him to take. Um, and uh, he was going to lose the vote in Congress as well. Uh, and, uh, and Putin very, uh, very deftly offered him uh, a way to leave the battlefield with honor because he could claim to his domestic audience and internationally that uh, this threat of force had resulted um, in a very, uh, beneficial, a very beneficial disarming of, uh, of Syria. Now, until that moment, Syria chemical weapons were not recognized by anybody as the uh, as the as the key national security interest of the United States in Syria. They were a they were a concern, but they were not the the, the central thing. It suddenly became central, 
Um, and, and what it what that deal ended up being was a legitimation of the Assad regime because it became our partner in this disarmament effort. Um, it represented us backing off, legitimating them, the ally of the um, of the Iranian, and I see it act, uh, the, of the Iranians and the Russians, and I see it as uh, as part of the the general pattern that I described of us. Our, our rhetoric saying one thing, but our body language saying a tilt toward Iran and its allies. Let's um let's have one final question. Uh, the gentleman right up here in the front, and if you would keep it short because we're running out of time, but It'll be short. dying to hear your question. This thing here. Uh, my name's Dick Kaufman. I'm I'm a civilian, un, unaffiliated. Um, where do the Iranian uh, nuclear negotiations go? and some of the broader Middle East policy issues go if, number one, the Republicans take the Senate this year, and number two, take the White House in 16. Conservative that's Republican a, in 16, a, I might add. Ray, do you want to start with that? Why don't we have well, everyone answer that? And then, um, <laughs> yeah. see, I'm, I'm, I'm a uniter, not a divider. Yeah. So, so. <laughs> that's why we're starting with you, Ray. At least the, the, the two uh, of them can divide. I actually, if you step back, uh, you would see the Iran policy that has taken place really up to joint plan of action as largely a bipartisan policy. Uh, the conceptual foundation of the Obama administration's Iran policy was crafted by Condi Rice's State Department, the notion of two tracks, economic penalties and negotiations, and segregating the Iranian <laughs> problem to the nuclear issue. That was, a, that was a 2005 conception. And that cons intellectual construct was embraced by the Obama <coughs> administration all the way to JPA. If you look at the votes on the Hill, there were 99-0. So there was a large bipartisan consensus about how to do this. Joint plan of action has created some divisions on that because right now you begin to see the Republican Party, at least in terms of its Senate votes, largely skeptical of that. Uh, I, can't s I, I can't say what the – there's nothing more permanent than continuity. Uh, I suspect that large segments, just like large segments and aspects of the Bush administration's Iran policy were preserved by the Obama administration, just sheer continuity, I suspect large segment – and aspects of the Obama policy may be preserved by a successor with much more skepticism, I would say, simply because this has gone on for so long. But Halal, do you like to? Yeah, I, I guess I, I would say it's true that um, uh, there was a kind of <coughs> shift over time in the Bush administration from a, a more, more restrictive demands with regard to Iran to more latitudinarian ones, and that that has been carried forward uh, in the Obama administration. The, the thing that seems to me to have changed, as I implied before, is that the net result of that is a brute fact, which is that the, the, the Iranian nuclear program has now become really very, very substantial, um, and which, are, which cuts in two different ways. You have uh, responsible people in town saying the only way to really uh, stop a, an Iranian nuclear capacity is to insist on the following conditions. 
the removal of 16,000 centrifuges, the closure of Iraq. Um, David Albright's group has laid out what they regard as what would be the minimum conditions for, um, and what they regard as fairly liberal conditions from the Iranian side, because um, it would permit them to now have what they, what, what originally they were forbidden, uh, nuclear enrichment capacity. Um, so that's much harder to remove, uh, but it also makes them much more dangerous. And that would be the either or, <coughs> I think, that, that in 2017 um, uh, a new administration would face. Uh, and it would have to say, um, it would have to ask itself, uh, are we, at that point, I think, are you prepared <coughs> to accept a nuclear, uh, a nuclear Iran, de facto, or, or stop it? Mike, something like very to dramatic. I, I have to agree uh, with Ray more than I want to um, on this uh, question of there being uh, some continuity between the Bush administration, which I served in, and, uh, uh, and, and the Obama administration. It's not uh, – it, it's, uh, it's true. Um, uh, but uh, I wouldn't call it a bipartisan consensus. I would say that it's the – there's <coughs> a – there has been a lot of uh, – there's been a lot of continuity among the foreign policy elite. Um, the – in general, the the uh, the Republican electorate and uh, re the Republican Party is um, is more ho much more hostile to this approach of the, the Iran question than is the Democratic Party, um, and uh, and as as this thing has unfolded in, in the way that Hillel described, I think that that um, kind of rank and file uh, distaste for the approach that uh, that is. Uh, uh, for the results of the of the approach is going to is going to be felt on the Republican side. This is going to be a this will be a major uh, to the extent that, that foreign policy will play a role in the election, which is an open question. This will be a this will be a major issue. Um, but how it will actually unfold is is really unclear because of the rise of the Rand Paul uh, 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 libertarian uh, strain of thought in in the Republican in in the Republican Party. Um, uh, you, we'll just have to we'll just have to wait and, and see how it goes. But to, to sum it up, I'd say there is a a greater belief in in the um, benefits to the United States and to the world of a muscular American foreign policy on the Republican side, and Iran is the I Iran is one of the test cases of that. So I, there's a greater likelihood that you'll get a tougher policy from the Republicans, but it's not certain. Mike, thank you. Hallel and Ray, thank you as well. And thanks thank to our you. audience. And thanks to our C-SPAN audience, too. Thanks very much.